so tonight we're starting a new book, and so um, I would say that we're also kind of starting off a new series, if you will. Uh, we started off this year um, covering the post-exile uh, period of the nation of Israel. And so we started the beginning of the year, 2018, um, when the children of Israel were done with their 70 years of captivity. And so we covered from January, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And we just finished Esther a few weeks ago. And now um, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, those concluded the historical books that are found in, in, uh, in canonical order and, and it's interesting because the book of Esther in the canonical order would have finished off the Old Testament, per se, as far as the historical books. And those three books, they covered, and I'm going to give you a lot of dates and a lot of, a lot of years, so uh, be mindful of that. Um, hopefully I, my dyslexia doesn't kick in and I start giving you guys just some crazy numbers. But, um, but these three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they covered from years 538... B.C. to about 430 B.C. And it was after 430 B.C., getting closer to, to, to 400 B.C., is when those 400 years, the Lord goes silent until John the Baptist basically comes on the scene and when Christ comes on the scene. So if the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther conclude the historical books then the series that we will be getting into in the, in the next several months will cover the last three prophetic books in canonical and chronological order. So if you will, make your way over to the book of, I, I always call it Haggai, and that's the way I'm familiar with it, but it's Haggai. So if I call it Haggai, you know I'm talking about Haggai. And uh, for those of you, because I've had people go, you can't call it that, it's this. I mean, one time when I was going through Philemon, it's like, no, it's Philemon. It's like, whatever it is, we're going to be covering that book. <laughs> so, so we're in Haggai or Haggai, whichever you prefer. Um, you can, whenever you get to teach, you can teach it the way you want. I will <laughs> call it Haggai, although I always want to call it Haggai. Be that as it may, this is the, the third to the last book. If you're not familiar where it's at, you can go to, to Chronicles, but it's the third to the last book of the OT, of the Old Testament. And so the series that we will be covering are the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and these are the post-exile prophets. These three prophetic books will cover or have covered a period of about 520 B.C. to about 430 B.C. With Haggai and Zechariah, these two were contemporaries to one another, as we will see as we will be going through this. And Malachi, he doesn't come until almost 90 years later, which is a trip because oftentimes we think that these guys were together as we always think that, that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther were together. There's some, some things that are going on there that uh, as, uh, um, uh, Hezekiah comes a little later in time. 
Now, I, I really want to remind you and kind of share with you what I shared back in the day when we began this year, uh, just to kind of set up the stage for us if we're truly wanting to understand the book of Haggai. Um, I need to set that stage because um, the, the history behind this, where we, where we are at, we need to have the little background, and it's going to take some while. So we will get to Haggai in a while. Just you wait and see. We'll try to be there. And so it's important for us to understand the reason why the 70-year period occurred in the first place. Um, for us to understand that and why these prophets come on the scene and why. You see, this 70-year period was because of a judgment or the judgment of God that came upon His people because of their idolatrous ways. But mainly it was because of their disobedience. Um, God has a thing about disobedience. I don't know if you know that. Um, he dislikes disobedience. He, just like you with your kids. You want your kids to be the most obedient kids ever, right? You want them to do everything the way you want them to do that. And when they don't, they're still your kids, but you're kind of a little put out about that thinking, dang it, come on. Um, and, and, and I'm sure God is because he's long-suffering and he's patient and he's all of those things. Um, he still loves his people, but when they are disobedient, judgment is a coming. And that's what happens. And so their disobedience was in not letting the land rest every seventh year. And you would think like, what's the big deal? It was a big deal to God. It was truly a big deal for God that, that his land that he had promised his people would have a seventh year of Sabbath. And he had told them that, and that every seventh year they would have a whole year of doing nothing with the land. Let it rest. Now, the first deportation of the southern kingdom started in about 605 B.C., the second deportation in 597 B.C., and the third, which was the last deportation, took place in 587 B.C. And I tell you these things because it's pertinent to where we're going to be at in our text. Um, so from the time of 605 B.C. to the time when Eli the priest died, which was earlier than that, in 1094 B.C., there was a place called Shiloh. Now, it's important to understand what happened in those years because there's a span there from the time he died to, to the period, to the time period of 605 um, B.C. Um, there's 490 years that spans that length of time. And it was from that time, from, from when Shiloh was destroyed and Eli dies, to 490 years later, um, where the first deportation takes place, that they never let the, the land rest in those 490 years. And so those 490 years are super important, be, not because Eli died, but because of what happened to Shiloh. And what happened after Shiloh was destroyed. What happened was 
since Shiloh was destroyed, the nation of Israel stopped observing the seventh day Sabbath. So those 490 years that they missed adds up to 70 years that they did not let the land rest. And when God says, I want my land to rest, he will make his land to rest. And it's interesting because at the end, when they are starting to get deported, <laughs> um, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 12 to 14 says this, as the Lord is speaking through him, But go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you and to your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. In other words, I am going to destroy you because you did not obey me. The judgment will come. And the Lord basically says the same thing in Jeremiah 26, 4 through 9. But listen to what he says way back in the day in Leviticus chapter 26, 43 to 46. It says, The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while they lie desolate, while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred, abhorred my statues. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Nor shall I abhor, abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. For their, but for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations. And I, uh, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. Verse 46, these are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. And so he's already saying way back in Leviticus, this is what's going to happen. What's interesting is when you get to the end of Second Chronicles, right before we went into Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, he says this to the children of Israel as they're really already starting to be taken away captive in, in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. It says, And those who escape from the sword I will carry away to Babylon, where, there, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the, per, the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of, ne of Jeremiah until the land enjoys her Sabbath, as long as she lays desolate to keep Sabbath, to fulfill 70 years. This is what I find fascinating about this whole thing, that God has already said it all. 
He's already told us what he was going to do. He already understood that the people were going to be disobedient. He understood what in turn would happen in Shiloh, that he would destroy it because of the, 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 the wickedness that his people were doing in worshiping other gods. He knew all these things were going to happen. And still he said, but I will continue to be their God. And this is what reminds me of his faithfulness time and time again as us, as believers, who want to do God's will, right? Who want to do everything. I was sharing on this on Sunday morning. And yet, like Peter, is like, never, never will I forsake you, God. Ever, ever, ever. And it's like, Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, not on your life or your death. Not on your life. Because we want to do what's right. We want to serve God. We want to do all these things. And yet he says, but when you mess up, I will continue to be your God. Because I, I'm not fickle like that, right? I don't change my mind just because you bum me out. He doesn't do those kinds of things. And so at the end of, of, of these 70 years, it ended about 536 B.C. When Cyrus, the Persian king who had been prophesied 150 years earlier by uh, uh, Isaiah by name that he would let his people go back home, which again is a trip. And so this king, this Persian king, it makes a proclamation because the Lord stirs his heart just, just like he, he does anybody. God can do that as he guides rivers, he guides kings. And so he, he, may, he sends this guy to make a proclamation to send the children of Israel back to their land where they will once again become a nation, which is another miracle, a huge miracle, that after 70 years being away from their nation and their land, normally you just dissolve as a nation, but God brings them back and they become a nation once again. That's a huge miracle. He did that again in 1947 when he brought Israel back after almost 2,000 years and so he's done that for them so from the end of second chronicles that i read to you just a while ago verse 30 uh, 21 to the last two verses of that chapter verses 22 and 23 there is a span of a span of 70 years and it is after that span of 70 years those last two verses are actually the first two verses of the book of ezra if I have your head spinning, I'm sorry. But I'm going to continue. Now, again, I know it's a long introduction. And I will still give you some more history as we go. But I think it's important if we're going to understand why Haggai, Haggai says what he says. Now, just to warn you, we're only going to cover two verses this, this evening. So you're thinking, okay, we're not going to cover the whole chapter. Two verses, Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shethiel, uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time 
that the Lord's house should be built. There's a lot to cover in there. And again, I'm hoping that with this long intro, the history, now that we get into our text, it will all begin to make a little bit more sense. You should have been writing all this down. But that's a lot of writing, peeps. That's a lot of numbers. And so again, we're only covering these two verses here. Now, I want to introduce you to Haggai, the prophet Haggai, and the time frame that he came on the scene. It's important to understand who this man is. It says in verse 1, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day. King Darius is a Persian king. He is the son of King Cyrus, the king. And Darius, he reigns from 521 B.C. to 486 B.C. And we are given an exact date that the word of the Lord came by Haggai. On the sixth month, on the first day of the second year of the king, which makes it August 29th, 520 B.C. I was just telling someone earlier, I just find this fascinating. And I know for some people, when you start giving out numbers, it's like, come on, my eyes are rolling back, Broski. Stop. But it's important, man. It really is for us to understand. And I was telling this person, just like when we would go back in our, our world history or our country's history, oh, George Washington was from this time to this time, or, or, or Abraham Lincoln, blah, 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 from this time to this time, or, or, or your grandparents, or your parents, or your wedding anniversary, or your this, or your that, or whatever it is. Those dates are important, and these dates are important for us to understand, to go back and go, okay, why does he give us some exact dates? And I just think it's fascinating because the book of Haggai gives us five very exact days. And they coincide with the five messages that he gives us in two chapters. The book of Haggai is only two chapters. And they are filled with messages from the Lord. And I think it's, it's crazy because this prophet Haggai, he comes on the scene with his first message on August 29th. And he delivers five messages and the last message that he delivers is on December 18th of the same year. So it tells us that for three and a half months this man is on the scene and this guy is a firebrand dude. He is going for it. He has something to say and he is going to say it. Now I don't know exactly how the, how the Lord speaks to him because it says that the word of the Lord came by Haggai. But we know that the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, God chose particular people in the Old Testament, in the OT, to speak to His people however He did that because He chose so many different var variations of how he spoke to him, whether it was through, through, through the wind, through, the, through, through the, the, 
whatever it was that spoke to them, a small still voice, if it was through other people, if it was through an angel, however the case was, God used people in those times. The Spirit fell upon them. It was taken from them. It wasn't like He does that with us today because we know in Hebrews chapter 1, or, or chapter 1 verse 2, I think it is, where it says, but now He speaks to us through His Son, through His Word. And so he spoke to these guys. And so he, he speaks to him however he uses it, but he uses him. And so in this case, he chooses a name by the name, by the, a man by the name of Haggai. His name apparently means festive or festival. And it derives from the Hebrew word hag, which means a festival. Now, some speculate, they suppose that he was born on a feast day, which is quite possible. And it's quite possible his parents didn't have a name picked out. And they just said, well, let's just name him hag for the festival that we're having. One guy thought that maybe he named him after his mom, a hag. Um, <laughs> that was actually me who thought of that one. I thought it was pretty funny. But none of those things support what is real, <laughs> where how they got this name. I don't know. I thought it was funny. I thought it was going to, I was cracking up in my office. Believe you me, it was crazy. Be that as it may. He wasn't named after his mom. I don't know what his mom's name is. Because we don't know much about him. So we don't know his parents' name for that part. <laughs> so we don't know him much about But we do know. <laughs> I just bombed on that one. That was great. But thank you, Helena, for laughing, man. Bless, your, bless you. Um, <laughs> but he was one of the three post-exile prophets. That's who this guy was. And again... As, as I've already shared with you, he is already a contemporary of Zechariah. Zechariah will come on the scene with him. Not in his book, but we see that in Ezra chapter 5. Now, some do believe because he makes a reference to Solomon's temple in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, some believe that maybe, perhaps, possibly, he had seen that first temple which meant that he was pulled out of Jerusalem and taken into exile, which possibly means that he was an elderly prophet, as opposed to Zechariah, who was more of a younger prophet. But he is only there for three and a half months. Now, Haggai is referred to as the alarm clock prophet because his messages were meant to wake up those whom he was speaking to in that short time. Now, I know alarm clocks are not the most popular thing in our house, but most of us need them every day. <laughs> they are a necessary evil, if you will. And this guy, Haggai, he has five messages that the Lord gives to him, and whenever it was appropriate on that particular day he tells us what day it is and then he shares the message and it was basically to wake up the people so however the word of the lord came to him however he did it in various ways this man 
somehow heard God's word. And because he heard God's word, it wasn't just for him. It was for the people that he came to minister to. And there's two particular guys that he came to minister to. And so he was bold enough and faithful enough to deliver what God had given to him. And again, it speaks to us in our hearts that when God speaks to us, there are times that he says, this is just for you. You don't need to share it with anybody else. But unlike you know, some of us is like, no, we want to share it with everybody. It's like, no, the message was just personal. But there are times that God speaks to you and he says, I need you to share this word with somebody else. And he sometimes gives you particular people to speak it to. And then sometimes we're going, I don't know if I want to, especially if it's hardcore message, right? You're going, I wouldn't want to hear this. And God says, but I need you to share, share it with them. And again, when people share things with me or with you, the Bible says that we are to test all things, make sure they are of the Lord. But when God speaks to us, and He speaks to us primarily through His Word, then we are, ought to be obedient and faithful and bold enough to speak what the Lord has given to us. And so He has this message, the Word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet and he introduces himself as a prophet and it comes to Zerubbabel and to Joshua now we've met these two men before in the book of Ezra they were the two main characters in the book of Ezra from chapters 1 to chapter 6 and these two men when they come on the scene in the book of Ezra the, the, they cover years 130 or 538 to 515, which is about 23 years from the, the edict that King Cyrus gave to them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He, they had come on the scene, and that was their specific purpose, to rebuild the temple. Now, Joshua is referred to in the book of Esther as Jeshua. And so if, if you were here with Esther, I know sometimes they go, no, he's saying Jeshua, it's Joshua, but it's Jeshua. So here in this book, he is called Joshua. These two men, they came with the nearly five or 50,000 people who initially came out of captivity. So once the edict goes out from the, the Persian king, there was about 50,000 people who made their way back down to Jerusalem. Many had never seen Jerusalem, but they came for the very first time. And it probably took them months to get there, but they got there. Zerubbabel, the son of Shaphiel, was more than likely the grandson of King Jehoiachin. He was the captive king um, that ended up being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And some believe that Zerubbabel was probably the stepson of or adopted son of Shaphiel. Um, but whatever bloodline he had, Zerubbabel was somehow related to the third to the last king of the nation of Israel or the last king. And so Zerubbabel was the, the legal, if you will, successor and heir of the, of the dynasty or of that kingship, of that monarchy. 
He, he is actually a descendant of King David. Zerubbabel was in direct line of the ancestry of Jesus. And so he is in the genealogy in Matthew and also in Luke. So Zerubbabel is a big deal. He is more of a civic leader than he is a prophet or a priest. He's not none of those. He is a civic leader. Joshua, on the other hand, or Jeshua, whichever way you want to call him, he is a high priest. He, his, he is the grandson of uh, Zeruiah, who was the, the king whom Nebuchadnezzar killed in Rebla back in 2 Kings chapter 25. And so the reason why Haggai has a message for Zerubbabel and Joshua is because they were the ones that were sent by God to rebuild the house of the Lord. And in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and the last verse, uh, verse 24, explains to us how they started the work and when they stopped it. Now understand, they stopped it for a time because of the oppression that was coming against them and the opposition that was coming against them. And it got so heated and so hot <laughs> that they decided to pull back from the work that God called them to do. And God never told them to stop. So in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, when King Cyrus makes the proclamation to build the temple, to Ezra chapter 4, verse 5. It is about two years. It goes from 538 B.C. to 536 B.C. And not much got done. Oh, they, 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 they laid the foundation and they, they, they made the altar, but they did not begin to build the temple. And so now that brings us to the second year of Darius, the king, Cyrus's father, or Cyrus's son. So it brings us to the date of August 29th, 520 B.C. And it would be in Ezra chapter 5 when both Haggai and Zechariah meet up with Zerubbabel and Joshua. And that brings us to the text of where we are at right now. Because it was on, in Ezra chapter 5 that they begin to share the message. And it's Haggai who has the message for them. It's around that time frame. And so all of this hopefully has tied in together. So verse 2. <laughs> Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come the time that the Lord's house should be built now I want to explain to you here as we move into the second chapter or second verse where it says thus speaks the Lord of hosts the Lord of hosts is an important term that we have to kind of look at and explain a little bit it means Jehovah Lord of of host and in the Hebrew it's Jehovah Shabbat and Shabbat 
mean, simply means host or hosts or armies, and it refers to warfare or service, that phrase host. In other words, it means Jehovah, the Lord of warriors or army, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. So when you see the Lord of hosts, he's talking about weapons, he's talking about warriors, he's talking about armies. And it, it speaks of the manifestation of God's power. And so when he says the Lord of hosts says this or is saying, he's saying the Lord who has all the power here, who's ready to cut some heads off, if you will, he's ready to go into battle, is saying something. And so again, if you're hearing this on this end, Zerubbabel and Jeshua is like, oh dang. He's talking about God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. The power of God is about to come and be manifest. And so the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, as it says in Psalms 24.10. And, and, and again, according to the Old Testament scriptures, again, it, it, it was often used when Israel was in need. And they needed the Lord's army, the Lord's power, and the Lord's strength to come in behind them. And, and, and you never hear that phrase, the Lord of hosts, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, nor do you find it directly in Joshua or in Judges. And you barely or rarely see it in the book of Psalms. But Jeremiah, again, at the end, when they're going to all start get deported, he is in a place where judgment is coming and he uses the Lord of hosts in some phrase 80 times. Haggai, in two chapters, and you can read this book in, in 10 minutes, in two chapters, he uses that phrase 14 times. Zechariah, in 14 chapters, calls upon the Lord of hosts 50 times. And then you have Malachi in his book. He uses it 25 times. And so you see that as we're going, getting into this portion of Scripture in the last three chapters of the Old Testament, that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of power is showing himself strong. Especially we see with Haggai here. The psalmist twice comforts his heart, it says, with the assurance that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of power, is with us. In Psalm 46, 7 and 11. And then he says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says. Now, you never really want to hear God say, about his people saying this this people instead of my people that means he's a little put out with you <laughs> it's almost like those times that that god and moses are debating arguing fighting whatever you want to call it where god says moses your people <laughs> and moses is going oh no you don't they're your people he says, no, Moses, they're your people. And they have this argument, and you, and you almost feel like God's going, God's a little disappointed. 
for, for him, as his children, if, if he would, you know how parents do this, your kid, and you know it's like, oh, you're not claiming them right now. What'd they do wrong? I don't know, but they're your kids. They take after your family, and they start bringing up, and, and you're going, that's not fair because it's our kids, right? And so you would never, as a Christian, want to hear God say something to the effect that you're distant from him. But that's what he's saying to these people right now. The Lord of hosts is saying, this people, those guys, not mine, they're not mine right now, although they are. But he's saying, this people. And you need to understand that, again, he understands that his people who are called my people right now, he is so disillusioned with them in many ways because of their excuses and their poor, poor priorities in their lives in that they are not living like his people. They're not representing them well. And we need to understand that these people were not bad people. These guys were the remnant, the ones that returned from Babylon in the first place. There was hundreds of thousands of them who were taken captivity, into captivity years earlier. And only about 50,000 of them returned. And so you understand, these guys were committed. They really wanted to serve God. They wanted to go back to their homeland. They had heard about it. Many of them had never been there. Some of them may have been old viejitos, old people who, who made their way back going, I want to see it again. And other people going, I've heard the stories. Right? And, and so these people were not bad people. But what happened, because of all the opposition that came against them, after they started the work, it's not like they walked away from God. All of a sudden, their focus, because, because the opposition, their focus was turned. They never walked away from God. But their focus was on other things, as we shall see later on in the next few verses. They hadn't forgotten about God. They just got busy with life. They got busy taking time off away from God. And because of that, their focus was on other things. And that's why Haggai is on the scene to say, wake up. Wake up. Why are you doing that when this is happening on this end? And that's why he's on the scene to wake these guys up as an alarm clock to say, hey, let's get our priorities back. Let's put the focus back on who God is. And yet, they say the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. The people made their excuses sound so spiritual. In other words, they couldn't say or speak against the idea of building the temple, so they spoke against the timing not God's will yet for us to do that. You see, they've seen it in ruins. They had left the work for about 16 years while they built their own houses and took care of their own priorities. And isn't it interesting that when you're thinking about the things of God, it's like, well, I really can't afford to do that. I really can't be doing that. All the while on this end, is like, bam, 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 man, you're buying everything. You're taking care of yourself because you want to do those things. And you will do what you always want to do. 
nothing kind of stops you to do those things when the focus is over there. When there's a need over here and God's going, hey, how about me over here? It's like, dang, God, I really want to be serving you, but I got these other priorities happening and I paid good money for that. You know that. He says, yeah, because you wasted your money that way and not on the priorities over here, as we shall see. I'm kind of giving you guys a little preview. Come back next week and you'll get the rest of it, right? And so understandably, there was great obstacles against the work and so God's people began to rationalize and they decided it's not time to build because it shouldn't be that hard, <laughs> right? Because the things of God shouldn't be that hard, right? Everything should flow nice and easy. When people say, oh, it's all falling into place, I'm thinking, mm, maybe it's not God. I don't know. <laughs> because I often think that. Because we think, no, God's work should always be easy. And it's like, well, somebody lied to you. Somebody lied to you. It's like, well, it's not convenient for me. Oh, really? Oh, so as, as long as it's all convenient, that's when you're going to serve God. And that's what these people are saying. It's like, well, God wouldn't want me to go do that if it's kind of hard. So I'll take care and build my own house first and live in luxury over here. Now, again, it's quite possible <laughs> that they said it's not, it's, it, the, the time has not come. It's quite possible that they said that because they thought the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had spoken about had not really yet been fulfilled. You see, it's quite possible that they were going from the last deportation in, in 587, and when the edict, came that was given by King Cyrus in 538, it was only 49, 50 years. And they're going, it's not time to build yet because we still have like 25 years and then we'll start building it. But what they didn't understand was that God was so gracious to count 70 years. He started from the first deportation in 605 B.C. He says, I'll start it there because Daniel the prophet, as he's taken captive, he's praying and asking God, Lord, be merciful unto us. Take care of us, Lord. You have your mercy in, in, John, in, in Daniel chapter 9. He is totally praying, Lord, I know that we've sinned. I know that we've messed everything up, Lord. But please, 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 Lord, take care of us. And God was so gracious that he looked at the, big, the first deportation and not the third one for 70 years. And so when you go to the first deportation instead of the last deportation, you only have three years left. <laughs> and we, we, I shared with you earlier that when uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua started their work, it took them at least two years to get things flowing and going. So they had about a year left, and by the time they would have finished the temple, 70 years were, were done. But because they stopped, when they stopped, it took them 16 more years. In 515 B.C. is when the temple was finished. It took them only five years to finish it. But they felt or they thought, well, this oppression and this, this opposition 
that's coming against us. And if you remember back in the day when we were going through that portion of Scripture in chapter 4 of Ezra, God told them, I'm sending you to build the temple. And they stopped. And God never told them to stop. And I think oftentimes because we are who we are and we hate opposition, when the going gets tough, we kick it. Can't be that hard to serve you, God. Right? It shouldn't be that difficult for me to get to church. So if it's getting difficult, I must be. I, I've, I've made other plans. I've, I've done this. Those things become easy. And all of a sudden, to do what God has called you to do is like, man, that's super hard, God. You're like asking for a lot. It's like, no, I'm not asking for a lot. I just want it all. I want it all. I want all of you. And if I ask you to go do something, I will give you the ability to do it. If it's hard, it's hard, but you stick to it. And these guys, because the opposition, and again, I'm not saying it was an easy opposition because these cats were, man, they were kind of going at them. The first five verses of, of Ezra chapter 4, you see how these guys were just boom, 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 boom. And if they couldn't infiltrate, they were going to come this way. If that wasn't going to work, they called the county on them to stop the work and blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff, right? All those things started happening. And so the work ceased. And it breaks my heart when I was going through that. And it still breaks my heart because God never told them to cease. The enemy will always put obstacles, peep, peeps, always. And obstacles are just impediments, or however that word is. It impedes you, but it doesn't stop you. Because an obstacle can be, you can go over it, you can move it, you can go around it, you can do whatever you can with an obstacle. If God closes a door, boom, settled, right? But the door was wide open. And Satan is going, I'll just make it hard. And Satan knows that when, when the going gets tough, Christians going to kick it. Because we can't stand opposition. And God says, I never told you to stop it. I called you for this time to build the temple. And again, God is gracious enough, guys. God is great. Oh, he's going to rebuke them. Believe you me. Maybe you're going, I don't want to come next week because I don't want to get rebuked. Oh, because you're one of those kind of Christians. Don't rebuke me, brother, sister. Because all of a sudden they're saying, get behind me, Satan. And it's like, no, it's not Satan. It's God telling you, knock it off. Get back to work. Because that's what he's going to tell these peeps. Knock it off. It's time to work. On that, we're going to close. Father in heaven, <clears throat> blessed be your name. Lord, you are.